Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McCollin, coming to you on a freakishly warm winter day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is epic fantasy author Evan Winter. Evan is a former filmmaker whose first novel, Rage of Dragons, was named as one of Time Magazine's best fantasy books of all time in 2020. The third book in his Burning series is due out in 2023. Evan and I talk about his experiences with music videos, the side work of being a creative professional that distracts us from actually creating, how his background in marketing helped him launch his first book, and the psychological toll our work can take on us. Enjoy my conversation with Evan Winter. Okay, so the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was that, like, looking at your bio, it's almost, it's amazing because you your bio literally says, born in England to South American parents, raised in Africa, but you're Canadian? Uh, yes, yes, that's right. I mean, I guess um, my parents um, are Guyanese in South America. So, um, and that's sort of part of the Caribbean, like what's most traditionally considered part of the Caribbean, but it's on continental South America. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were both born there. Uh, for my, my dad did his master's in engineering in England. Um, and when they went there, my mother was pregnant with me. I was born in England. And so the first year of my life was sort of spent there. And that's, you know, obviously the first year of my life, I have a British passport, but, uh, didn't, don't really know England very well. Um, and, uh, then I went to, uh, my dad got a job in Zambia in central Africa and sort of, I sort of grew up there. And that was where sort of like, that's where my first memories really made and formed. Uh, that's where sort of, uh, started school, uh, made my first friends, um, you know, like just sort of really started life and, and formed uh, who I was as a person, I guess. And then we moved to Canada and sort of, uh, Canada's basically been home since with a short jaunt to America uh, and LA for a while to try and make movies. Uh, I was a music video director for a good 15 years. And so, um, you know, the ultimate goal always being, well, hopefully I can tell stories in a longer format and, uh, and make films. Uh, yeah. So that's, you know, and, and then I guess a funny story there is that a good friend of mine, who's an incredibly intelligent guy, um, you know, like from an educational background and just from an actual personal level of just massive intelligence, uh, I was talking to him about him about making films. And one day he said to me, um, you know, a good thing to do sometimes is to picture the people who are at the sort of the, the absolute pinnacle of where you'd like to be and see if you'd want their life. And he goes, and that's, that's a good test of whether you really want to do the thing that you think you want to do. And I thought to myself at the time, Lord of the Rings had just come out and I go, okay, well, Peter Jackson, you know, that's kind of the pinnacle. And then I thought about that and I was like, and, you know, and in sort of the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings, uh, first of all, an amazing accomplishment, those three films, Yeah. but also the, the, the sort of the physical and emotional and mental toll it seemed to take on that man. And, and, you know, and, and he got to make the films in New Zealand, right? Which is sort of home for him, Yeah. Uh, you know, but a lot of directors don't, they have to travel all over the place. So I guess I was kind of like, that seems like a really tough path to travel. Um, 
And shortly after that, I remember hearing Steven Spielberg was struggling to raise financing for one of his next films back in that day. Um, and I was like, Steven Spielberg is struggling to raise money? And I just sort of, I think I started to realize that lifestyle of being a, a movie director is, uh, there's a lot besides trying to tell a story that goes into that. And I'm, I wasn't sure I was really cut out for all of that. Yeah. So. yeah. And, and I've talked about this kind of just with the uh, kind of just regular writers and, and people who do YouTube channels and stuff like that is that like a lot of times you get into like a creative field because you love the creativity, right? But then suddenly you start being successful at it and realize that the creativity is such a small part of being successful at it. You have to become a project manager and a businessman. And there's so much going on. Yeah, exactly that. And I guess I sort of figured, well, where's a place where that is the most pleasant, like all that sort of side work that ends up being at least 50% of the, you know, the, the real work, so to speak, where is that the most pleasant? And the very first thing that I'd ever wanted to do, I mean, when other kids were talking about becoming uh, police people, fire people, doctors, lawyers, whatever have you, um, you know, this was in grade three in Zambia. My teacher's name was uh, Mr. House. Uh, he was from, from England, right? And he said, well, what, what do you want to be? And went around the class asking, and I said, I want to be a writer. And so back in grade three, I knew that was what I really wanted to do. And I think I've been trying to chase getting to that point ever since, but because I had no clue how one became a writer, there didn't seem any clear path. Um, I tried to figure out every other possible way I could get into telling stories. Um, uh, I started to, to act. Uh, I acted in high school. I, I, got, I became a union actor in, in Canada and I was in, a, in those bit parts and movies and a couple commercials and music videos. I uh, started to do music videos myself because I was like, well, maybe I can tell stories in this shorter, smaller format and then branch out. So again, my whole, everything about my life has been trying to get to the point where I get to tell stories somewhat on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I, you know, so I feel very, very fortunate to be where I am now and I, I get to, to do that. So, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. What, so what kind of, what kind of music videos did you do? <laughs> Good question. Um, I have, I, I've directed music videos for, um, with Pusha T, uh, Flo Rida, Enrique Iglesias. Um, I've directed videos with, um, who else? Um, tons of people that are, uh, um, you know, a lot of fun. Timo Matic out of Australia, um, which, which is one of the videos I, I quite enjoy looking back on as well. <laughs> and yeah, so I've, I had a chance to shoot in Australia, in England, uh, throughout America, in Canada. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it was a good time and I really enjoyed the work. Uh, but one of the things I, I sort of say is that it always felt like I was, I'm left-handed. And it always felt like when I was working in film, like I was trying to write with my right hand. I could do it huh. and it felt like a challenge. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get better at this and better at this until nobody can tell that I'm writing with my offhand. But it always felt like I was writing with my offhand. And uh, when I finally got the chance to start trying to tell a story in sort of novel format, uh, it was a bucket list thing for me. Uh, you know, I'd just been finished with a, with a job. I had about a year of, uh, <laughs> of runway before I actually had to find another sort of real grown up person job. Yeah. And I was kind of like, well, you know, this is probably my last chance. I'm getting older. It's my last chance to do this thing that I've always thought would be amazing. And at least if I try to write a book, maybe I'll sit down and try and write it and I'll hate every minute. Mm. And that'll tell me, okay, cool. It was a dream. You tried it. You're done. Let's keep going with, with, with life. I sat down to write Rage of Dragons and it, it felt for the first time, I think in my entire life, like this was where I was supposed to be. And I was finally writing with my left hand. So, yeah. Oh, that's very, very cool. Now, so Rage of Dragons was your first novel then, huh? Uh, that's right. Yeah. First one. 
<laughs> Dang, that is cool. I always feel like very like uh very like uh proud of the fact that Promise of Blood was my second novel. Uh, you got me beat, man. That's awesome. Oh no, not at all though. I mean, like I mean, you know, you Promise of Blood is your second. It's amazing, and I, I, I you know, <laughs> one of the famous stories that you, I'm sure, know very well. Uh, Brandon Sanderson's uh, big debut uh, wasn't was far from his first. So like. You know? Yeah, was it was it thirteenth or something like that? It was it was yeah. high up there. That's in, that's impressive commitment. <laughs> I think he was working on like his twelfth or thirteenth when his like sixth book got published or something like that. Jeez. He's he's way more prolific than I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I see that. I see all the status updates that go up, and I'm like, oh man, I, I gotta I gotta figure myself out because I'm just not on that kind of level in terms of productivity. It's not it's not there. Right, right. I hate that. I love like I know that you're <laughs> never supposed to compare yourself to other writers because like I have some writer friends who look at my productivity and go what mm. the heck man you, you you write so quickly but then i look at somebody like brandon and go "Jeez, like that's like not like i'm not even in the same hemisphere right right it's, <laughs> uh, but th- that's really cool so so it was your first book but you it wasn't your first time writing so you had experience both working on writing and trying to create narratives and knowing what it's like to try to produce a story for an audience yeah i mean i guess i did have a a, a- a fairly strong background in that aspect of things, even if not in sort of a novel format. Um, I, you know, I started out writing uh, plays in high school. One of them was produced and went on to uh, the finals of, um, it's called the Sears Ontario Drama Festival. It's this great thing that Ontario does in Canada, where there's like over 300 schools, they all put on plays and there's a sort of a, they give out awards and you, and you the plays that progress to the next level, keep going, keep going until you're traveling to maybe, you know, a hundred miles away from your hometown to put on this show at a festival with a bunch of other of these awards winning shows. And it's an amazing experience. And to talk about the arts in education contributing to sort of driving you towards a path of creativity and, an art and, and, a, and a sort of a, a career or at least sort of a, a path in the arts, like it really helped to solidify that idea of how much value the arts had for me personally and for other people. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote all through high school. Um, I wrote then as well as a ghostwriter for other music video directors. I wrote an unproduced and uh, never to be produced screenplay when I, while I was in LA. And, um, and I also, yeah, I wrote, um, for myself when I was music video directors, write the ideas for the, for the videos. Yeah. So typically what happens is the artist comes and go, this is the song. This is what we're kind of feeling. Uh, pitch your best idea for this and pitch a budget. And then they send that sort of brief out to like, you know, five, 10 directors, however many, and all the directors come back with their, pitches and the budgets attached. And so, you know, it's funny because I think that I almost always won jobs based on the strength of the writing mm-hmm. as opposed to the quality of my reel. And I'm proud of a lot of the work I've done, of course, but uh, in terms of the actual finished videos, but I think I won jobs because of the writing. So, yeah. yeah so oh, that's cool. I weirdly music videos is, is like a, I, you know, the, the term, the term um, uh, kind of guilty pleasure is kind of a stupid one because there's nothing to be guilty about, but like music videos are that weird pleasure for me. Like I didn't grow up with television in the house. We had a TV, but like it was, my parents didn't like the things that were on television. So it'd be like, Oh, if you want to watch something, you get a, you get a video VHS from the library. Right. And that was Mm -hmm. it. And I remember going to a friend of mine's house uh, at maybe 13 years old or so. And just right after school, and sitting down and then he just flipped on the TV and it was, it was MTV. It, it might've been, it was MTV. What was the other big one for a long time that showed music videos all day? Um, I mean, out in, out in Canada, there's much music. So MTV, much music, uh, BET. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. It's you something. I don't remember which hmm. one it is. 
but yeah, so he pl- fl- flipped on something, and but it was music videos, and I feel I, like I sat there just staring at it for like an hour, and he's like, "Dude, do you want to do something? Like go, like, <laughs> and I like I was entranced." And, and I started back in the day, you know, like when, when I first got my own computer in my uh, in my room, you know, like everybody's, you know, you're 16 and your first thing is always like, oh, I, I figure out how to download porn, right? I was downloading music videos. <laughs> like I genuinely download music videos and I had a folder of music videos. And I just, I love the whole concept because they're so strange, but also you're just memorized for like, what, three and a half minutes. And I, no, yeah, exactly. I, I, I always have been curious how I, I know that we're epic fantasy novelists, but like I, I'm going on about music videos, but I've always been fascinated by like the thought process that goes into these weird little pieces of art. I, I love that. No, I think I, you know what? Strangely enough, I think there's kind of related because in music videos, there's always the attempt to create almost a secondary world for the artist to exist within. I remember um, when I was trying to figure out my own path in music videos and how to get better at the job, one of the directors I looked up to was Mark Romanek. Um, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. It's either Mark Romanek or Mark Romanek. Um, and he's an incredibly talented music video director. And when I was looking up a couple of interviews with him, he would talk about how instead of trying to create large, bombastic, lots of many things, lots of things happening and all the rest, he create a world for these artists to exist in where it was like the music sort of centered and grounded that world and the artists got to be in there and that was what was fascinating to watch so i think especially maybe when we were growing up music videos were doing a lot of that and there was a very sort of secondary world kind of vibe to them all. yeah man i honestly i'd never even occurred to me the idea that this the secondary world that you create for the artist but it makes those the, the moment you said it it's like oh that clicks it makes sense oh man i just i find that incredibly fascinating especially because music is one of those things that i like but i have zero talent in and so it's (laughs) it's right like so it's like this thing that like it feels otherworldly to me like holy crap people can do that with a guitar or their voices or or even words set to something else you know i i I find it fascinating, but like in that, like looking through a lens of, I could never do that way. No, exactly. There's a question. Do you, do you write and listen to music when you're writing? I've tried. I don't, Hmm. um, you know, I, I know a lot of people that do, do you, I do actually. Um, yeah, I listen and I even listen to music with lyrics most of the time and it kind of just works. But so when you're writing, you're just, it's silence. You're just, no, I, I, I'm, I'm a dead silence person. Um, I have, oh, wow. I've had the only success I've ever had writing is writing action scenes set to the Fury Road soundtrack. Very nice. Very nice. Because it's like one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's so freaking good. And, and the sound is the, the music is one of the things that makes it amazing. And, uh, and there's just certain moments in it that I can be, I can like flip on like the, the, the track that's playing uh, with the war drums, with the cars being lowered, right at the the beginning of the film, like that makes me want to write a big action scene. But but weirdly, I just don't connect that often between kind of what I'm writing and music. Um, you know, I, I like music plenty, but uh, man, I I just I, I I struggle with distractions. I suppose. Mm. Um, you know, oftentimes I I have to I have to flip off. You know, turn shut down all of my. Uh, all the open windows that I would use for research or something, you know, like on, you know, like Google tabs and things like that. I have to close everything, just get myself focused on the writing, but that's, I don't know. That's a focus thing rather than a, mm. you know, maybe a creativity thing. And so then do you have headphones on with like noise canceling or you just, you no. just sit there uh, bare and just go. No, just sit there bare and go. It's, 
Okay. You know, I, I'm one of those people that really, I like to sit in my own head. I know a mm-hmm. lot of people don't. Um, I have done five hour road trips by myself in dead silence before. And it's wow. just, and it's, it's because I just like to sit and think, you know, especially <laughs> when I'm not able to fiddle, you know, cause I am a fiddler. I will fiddle with things on my computer, with things on my desk, whatever. And I just, when I can't fiddle, when I'm in the shower or when I'm driving mm. a car or something that I, I have to have 90% of my brain doing something else and I can't really use my body for anything, that's when I do my best thinking. Yeah, I've, I've been surprised how much comes to me when either driving or in the shower. Like, it's it's bizarre. Like, and like, like you say, I guess it's because you can't really do much else other than just go on autopilot. You know, you, especially if you're driving or whatever, you're oftentimes you're kind of in autopilot mode. And so you're just with, there with your thoughts. And it's, uh, you know, I've actually started to, I've actually, I don't usually intentionally go out driving to try and solve them, maybe plot problems or something, but a lot of pl- plot problems have been solved for me when I am driving. So yeah. yeah, that's, that's kind of wild. So that in terms of you just sitting there and just going, it, like, are you, uh, not to use these terms sort of uh, prescriptively, <laughs> yeah. but do you plot or pants then? Uh, no, I'm a, I am a short term plotter, mm. um, and a long term pantser. I have, uh, kind of, I have, uh, kind of uh, beats that I want to hit in a book, like plot beats that I have in my head or that maybe I've sketched out very loosely on paper. Um, oftentimes what, what I send to my editor that is selling the book or reassuring them that I know what I'm doing has <laughs> nothing to do with w- what actually winds up on the page. Um, but yeah, so I have these big beats that I want to hit, but then I kind of, uh, I do plotting on a very short term basis where I'll, I'll plot out a scene and then maybe the next couple of scenes after that. So I know kind of like, okay, the action, the consequence, next action, next consequence, kind of, you know, sort of uh, jumping through that sort of those, those hoops of storytelling. Um, but beyond that, no, I, I, I find that if, if I try to be really good about plotting like a whole novel, I will have wasted an entire afternoon because I I'll write the first scene and immediately come up with a dozen tiny problems. That means Mm. that every branching solution changes how the rest of the book goes. Right. And I I don't know. I, I genuinely am jealous of people that can sit down and plot something very thoroughly and then execute it without deviating hugely. Yeah. I think, um, I, I am a plotter and I, and I like it. And I think it works for me. And, and uh, it's the only place where I sort of pre-plan anything in my whole life. Really. I'm kind of a bit scattered and everything else. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know, my, my wife always says it's, it, that's the strangest thing that you sit there doing that because you do not do that with other things. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it works for me because it always helps me feel like um, I know what I'm supposed to be writing when I sit down at the desk. And at the same time, like you're saying uh, I admire writers who do it the other way because there's that sort of like, at least from my perspective, it feels like there's that sort of level of really organic uh, naturalism that comes into the writing, that comes into the characters and their decisions and the movement of the plot that I think I end up having to go back in and I have to find those moments, at, you know, in the subsequent drafts. And uh, yeah, so I, I always kind of feel like, wow, that's to be able to come up with things completely on the fly and have them sort of make uh, you know, a rough, a rough level of sense as you're sort of meandering through that sort of thing is, is, is wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and it's so funny because I feel like the same way about this, 
like about plotting about thorough plotting is just it it feels like gosh how do you restrict yourself but also be successful like (laughs) (laughs) it makes my brain hurt a little bit right Mm -hmm. oh no that's funny um so i uh i saw that you also had worked for an infrastructure company yeah yeah so what Um, was that like you said that you were creative director and i was really curious how creative director and infrastructure company go together? Yeah, no, that's and actually it's a really good question because it was a bit of an experiment for them. They're, I think they uh, the, the they're a bit multinational, but primarily in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And they do multi billions of dollars of, of work a year. Like they're creating your subways, they're creating massive um, you know sports stadiums and huge skyscrapers for both you know residential and commercial. And there's a lot of work and planning that goes into that. And because there's so much money up front. What happens in a lot of the cases is it's either governments putting money into these projects, especially if they're like a massive subway, right? Uh, it's it's billions and the government's putting money into these. There's only a few companies that can actually sort of do this work. And so what makes you stand out, right? And the idea was to try and see if they could create a bit more of a sense of brand, a mm-hmm. bit more of a sense of, well, you should pick us over another company because of this. And so, you know, they were interested in people who had a bit, you know, who were sort of from a more creative background, from more sort of a marketing type of background to try and come in and see if they could sort of um, differentiate that sort of value proposition for them. And so I came in, I was the creative director and we did things like uh, one of the major big projects was to sort of completely revamp the website. And one of the things we did is we found a, a, um, a photographer who does buildings, um, and we you know we scout. We looked at a ton of different portfolios, and it's sort of like the cover of your book, right? Um, yeah. Typically, most in, uh, infrastructure companies they will show photos of their uh, of their buildings that they've made, and they'll have professional photographers. But a lot of them are more about the practical considerations. And we tried really hard when I when I when I went in there to find somebody who had that true artistic sense. They were they were looking for sounds a little cheesy, maybe they were looking for the soul of the building, right? Yeah, finding those angles, shooting at the the perfect uh, moment in light. And stuff. And we were sort of, we even sort of tried to provide a budget that would allow the photographer to sit there at a site and wait for the perfect light. So that when you look at the photos that this um, construction company has versus others, you can feel the difference. And so it really sort of helped people understand the government's or even private investors understand this is what you're getting when you go with this company. So kind of like injecting a little bit of romance into something that doesn't normally have romance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really fascinating. Do you think, do you think the experiment worked? Uh, no, you know what? I really do. I, I do think it worked. Um, I think that there's, it's difficult to sort of hold on to that long term because once you kind of do it with a website, once you do it with updating the whole portfolio, well, what do you, you know, and I'm no longer there, obviously, how do you continue to need a creative director in the long term if you're an infrastructure company, yeah. right? But I do think there is an incredible amount of value in being able to market, uh, promote, and brand yourself um, in a way that differentiates you from others. I think that even in books, uh, it's one of the things that I, I came into uh, writing with. Um, my plan was always initially, at least, to, to self-publish, and I did. And it was because, in part, I thought, in, my logic was, at least, I believe that um, given there are probably around three, 4,000 books published every single day that go up on a site like Amazon, for example, every single day, there is the algorithm that helps make things visible. And there are the efforts that the authors or the publishers make to make things visible. Okay. And my thinking was that I would try to use some of that sort of uh, professional knowledge I had to help make my work visible. 
and not in any kind of way that is to sort of sell books to people who have no business reading them because that just hurts you in the long run. Anyhow, you get low ratings because you've got an audience that's not really geared towards a thing you're writing, but to try and find the right audience for the book, make the book visible and that way be able to use the algorithm to help me keep that book visible, use my marketing experience to help push that book out to people and get sales that way. And hopefully be selling to the right reader. Because if you're doing that, I mean, advertising at the very highest and best of levels is not trying to sell someone someone something they don't need. Now, obviously, if you want to sell tons and tons of things, you start to do that, which is bad because then you're selling, you're pushing things on people. In an ideal world, if you are marketing or advertising, you're showing people something that they would probably enjoy or want anyway. So I I tried to take that attitude into into the writing and into the marketing of the book, I should say, if not the writing of it. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, So make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. I I had a really interesting conversation um, in real life just recently, but in terms of this podcast, it'll probably come out a couple weeks before this one does. Um, with Lauren Panapinto, yeah. who uh, is a, our, our mutual art director. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we talked a lot about that, a lot about all of the little things that nobody really, really discusses around covers um, and, and, and the little tiny considerations, the fiddly bits that, that an art director has to think about uh, in order to figure out a, a good cover for this particular book, but also keep it unique and interesting, but familiar compared to the other 50 covers that they're putting out that year. And it's such a complex, a little machine that is, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's one of those things that plenty of people could do a halfway decent cover. Yeah. Very few people can can direct a good cover. Exactly. And I think that uh, one of the absolutely special things about Orbit Books is Lauren Penapinto and um, her work on the covers um, for the books uh, at that publisher, because I think they stand out um, and they are exciting in a way that is in a way that harkens back to what fantasy readers of yore are kind of used to seeing, but is still sort of, again, for lack of better words, fashion forward. Like it's looking to the future and saying, you know, it's, it's pushing the envelope and daring you to, to, to sort of pick that book up and give it a shot while also always connecting to things that, you know, you might've really liked in the past when you were growing up and really reading fantasy. So uh, that's a, crazy difficult balancing act that um, she pulls off time and time again. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and did you feel that you kind of, I mean, we're talking and you obviously people, a lot of the listeners will already know that you made the very successful transition from self-published to traditional published. Um, And, uh, but I'm curious kind of your thoughts on that tradition and how kind of, well, how successfully you feel like you came out of the gate before you got the offer from Orbit? Um, like, how 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 did you feel about the how well you did on that? Um, yeah, it's it's a really good question, and I think that for me, 
I was the the ultimate goal once I decide once I wrote the book and I said to myself, no, I love this. This is this is where I want to be if I can possibly be here. I want to stay. Um, so we self uh, well, we I self published because it was just me at the time, really. I guess I self published and um, yeah. you know using sort of I, I think there is a inclination or desire to try and say like, oh, I self published and it was it was um, uh, uh, you know it was. I, you know, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to figure out how, how to phrase this, but there's a, there's sort of like an inclination to say like, oh, it was completely lightning in a bottle and it's so lucky, blah, blah. And there is that luck component. There is that fortune component to it. But um, because of some of the the privileges I have from my experienced background, I was able to try and do my best to leverage some of that into marketing and, uh, you know, sort of public relations in an online way as an, in, as an independent. And that allowed me to sort of get some of the initial sales to start things off. Plus, um, there was also the very good fortune of having places like Reddit, our fantasy um, at the time, really sort of get into the book when I announced that it was sort of, when I just sort of told them that uh, the subreddit that it was selling and they sort of pushed up the charts initially. And then with marketing and everything else, you try and keep it up in the charts and stuff like that. And so the shorter, the shorter answer to this long answer uh, to your question is that the book did well enough that I was, my plan at that point before Orbit approached me was I was going to keep publishing and that was going to be my full-time job. Yeah. And I felt really, really fortunate to to be in that position. And again, with, with self-publishing, it's tricky. You don't know how long that can last. Maybe the algorithm changes, you know, next year or something or next month even, right? And Amazon's doing something very different and it's harder to keep your books visible and, and get, get readers, keep readers invested, right? Um, I think also with Amazon's Kindle Unlimited, it, it can be tricky. Kindle Unlimited being, um, I know you know, but I'll just say yeah, yeah. Kindle Unlimited being Amazon's Netflix version of books, kind of you pay a single fee and you get to take as, as many things as you want from that sort of overall catalog that they have, uh, which is fantastic for people being able to read a lot of books. But the trick of it is it's almost like streaming in a way where, where uh, I'm going to make an assumption here, but I'm going to say when, when we were growing up, <laughs> it was about albums and CDs and you bought something for the entire album and you listen typically from front to back. But with streaming, it kind of divorces you from the artist a little bit. Yeah. And so you're, you're looking at a single and it, it's more difficult to generate a lot of, it's not, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to say generate as if you're trying to construct it artificially, but it's, it makes it more difficult for the average reader, I would argue, to connect and, and stick with an author. Now, because you six, now because you, you, if you read a book, you're reading it for 12 to 20 hours, you're still going to be more connected than if you listen to that latest hit song in a streaming service and you just add it to your liked button or something. So it plays again in your loop with all your other artists. Like that's a three minute commitment versus a 12 to 20 hour commitment. Yeah. So you'll be more committed to the author. But my worry is that, um, or not worry, but my thought about something like streaming is that, or Kindle Unlimited, is it makes it, it makes that connection between author and reader less tangible than is, than we used to have, or that you have with sort of that uh, traditional publishing model a little bit more, yeah. right? Because, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. I, um, I, I, there is a subset of readers that I honestly, I don't think I knew existed. Um, in that they read books just to have something to read. And, and this is, I, I, I don't want to sound this, make this sound at all condescending in any way, but there is a subset of readers who will read several hundred books a year. And they, you know, maybe one a day, even if it's a shorter book, but they are speed readers. They tend to not really, they tend to not keep much of the book in their head. 
they just kind of they go through it because they enjoy the process but once that book's done they just pick up the next one immediately and and they just plop through books and and that i i feel like that seems to be the predominant type of reader who is on kindle unlimited um and that's just my impression i have no professional sort of statistics on this kind of thing obviously but but that kind of reader i i feel like you almost aren't gonna get them to invest in you as an author anyways um, and so it, it kind of holds an interesting place in the publishing ecosystem um, because they're, yeah, obviously they're getting their books for cheap, $10 a month or whatever it is these days. Um, but they also, they also just plow through everything and they don't really care about you as an author. They don't really care that much about your world because they have a hundred other worlds to get through this year. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, absolutely on board with what you're saying there. And, and even in terms of the, uh, I, there is no, um, there's no condescension directed at that type of reader at all. My mother is one of those readers, yeah, and she reads a ton of books. Now she does, she's not on Kindle Unlimited, but she like you know, borrows from the library and uses Overdrive or whatever is the app, and, and she reads a ton of books a year. And sometimes she'd be like, "Oh, I read this really good book," and I'll be like, "Oh, who was it by?" And she'd be like, "Oh, I don't know." And I'll be like, "Well, what happened in the book?" And she's like, "Ah, oh, there was a, it's a thriller. There was a murder. It was really good." But like like you were saying, it. She enjoys them in the moment and it's entertainment and she appreciates the work of the author, but it's, she's, it's almost like she's a streaming listener to music, right? She finds some hits and she gets through them, but she's not necessarily going to go back to that same author and follow them through their overall catalog, right? Like that's not what she's necessarily doing. Although she still has, of course, some of her favorites and she'll read what, you know, she'll read whatever they put out. But yeah. I, I feel like my early kind of my early teenage years were a bit like that in terms of reading. I, I, uh, when I was little, my mom volunteered at the library, at the local library on Wednesday nights. So I'd go with her and I'd just wander the stacks for a couple hours and I'd pick a bunch of things and I'd read them. And, uh, and I, I tended to read pretty voraciously like that in that, like my wife will, will occasionally bring up a book and be like, Oh, I remember reading this book as a child. And, did you ever read that? And I'll be like, man, that sounds really familiar, but I have zero memory. And and so I'll go look up the cover and I'll be like, oh, I remember that cover. I definitely read that. Uh, but the, so there's like all these, like there's there's dozens or hundreds of books that I treated like that. And then, and then I found Epic Fantasy. And weirdly, it's a, it was a weird transition that I found Epic Fantasy and suddenly the books started mattering. Like it wasn't just reading to pass the time or reading because I enjoyed reading. It was like, oh, these worlds matter. Like they they get me into it. And I think I think one of the earliest was uh, maybe the Belgariad, uh, and then uh, but then Wheel of Time. Like that was the one that like cemented it for me. And man, but like once I got drawn in, it was just it changed the experience of reading for me. And I think I was pretty much exactly the same, even down to Belgariad and Wheel of Time. Like those are the ones that sort of locked me in. And I was like, oh, this is what we're doing now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. like, you've got me. I'm strapped in seatbelts on. Let's go. I'm, I'm here for the ride. And so, yeah. And, and what's even in, what's super interesting to me as well is that even in some, in a place like Kindle Unlimited, where it can be a little bit more difficult um, for authors to really sort of lock readers in, in that same way, there are still authors that do it, of course. And it's amazing to watch them go. I mean, a, a clear and obvious example is Will White and the Cradle series and how there's a massive readership for that. And it's, it's voracious and waits anxiously for each new book to drop. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's, it's not like it doesn't get done there. I, um, and I don't want anybody listening to think, Oh, this is sort of like, um, uh, Kindle Unlimited isn't, isn't, Kindle Unlimited or streaming or online reading in that way isn't uh, as valid. It's completely as valid. I guess my my thought is just that it's 
maybe even more challenging for an author to hold on to their readership than the traditional model. And that's, and so, so when someone like Will White does it, it's even more amazing because yeah, it's, it's so it's easy for a reader to just read other things, right? Incredibly impressive. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and, and you, like, I'm sure you've done the same thing where you kind of just pop onto Amazon and you look at a single book and then you show, it shows you the recommendations, you know, right underneath. And then it shows you the advertised recommendations mm-hmm. and neither of those algorithms. It's like it dozens and dozens. You can scroll through and it's dozens and dozens of people that I've never heard of books. I've never heard of the covers all look great. They have great reviews. There's like lots of go- stuff going on there, but it's like a, it, it makes you realize just what a tiny part of this larger publishing thing you are mm-hmm. when you're like, oh, I felt I thought I had a pretty good finger on the pulse of what is going on in the industry I work in, and I don't know who any of these people are. And and it's humbling, I think. I, I, I think that that can be said in a very condescending way where you're like, oh, I don't know who they are, you know, kind of thing. But that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that it's it's humbling in that sort of like, oh, man, there are so many other authors out there. There's so many other people to choose from. It's it's crazy. Yeah, no, it, it feels like a golden age for reading, not just because I'm enjoying a lot of the fantasy books that are coming out nowadays a ton, and I'm enjoying the way they feel like they have grown out of what was, at least in terms of my little small slice of reading, but also because there's just so much to choose from. And uh, like you're, exactly like you're saying, there are all these books and all these authors and all these series that have strong readerships, uh, strong fan bases, and they're they're all like they're over here, and maybe I don't quite see them, but it exists, and there's readers that are so involved, so invested, so in love. And I think as a reader myself, although a much slower one than my mom, for example, but as a reader myself, I find that both fascinating and awesome. Like to know that people are reading uh, that much and that well. And I know, especially with the pandemic and everything, there was a a large concern, especially at the beginning, about publishers struggling. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely struggles, but all the reports that have been coming out recently have been talking about how even traditional publishers have made more money in the last couple of years than they have in like the decade, decade and a half, two decades before. So, you know, people are reading. and. That's an amazing, amazing thing, I think. Well, didn't I, I'm trying to remember what it was. I saw something that was like, this was last year, but it was something about how books that were kind of like the, I don't, I don't remember what the genre is called, but like cookbooks and self-help books and things like that, they just absolutely plummeted. But fiction just took off like crazy over the last two years. And I mean, it, it's so understandable though. You know, people, people are crammed into their houses. They don't, they can't go out as much as even people that are still being quite active probably don't go out nearly as much as they used to. And it changes the dynamic of, uh, oh, oh, wait a second. I'm out of Netflix shows to watch, right? Like I've, I've binged everything I could binge that looks interesting. What do I do now? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, and uh, here comes a little fiction to, to give you that adventure, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, you, you, you mentioned kind of going into self-publishing uh, with kind of a confidence in this idea of, you know, I have some experience here uh, in terms of the marketing and publicity and, and trying and knowing how to push a something, knowing how to push a creative product. I know that uh, is often uh, that that phrasing is often you know <laughs> annoying to some authors, uh, but uh, knowing that kind of ecosystem a bit, and I was curious how like what's the balance in your head with being confident in what you do and being proud of being good at it, 
versus trying to stay grounded and 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 in a way just not turn into an arrogant asshole. Hmm, that's a great and tough question. Okay, let me see. I think for me, um, I have this whole like little theory about how a lot of this stuff works, and it might be completely wrong, but it works for me so far. And 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 I see, I haven't seen things that make me not believe it yet. And the overall theory is basically that. Um, Writing is subjective, and we all kind of know that, but there are lots of attempts to create a sense of objectivity around it. And I'm not particularly interested in that. I'm more interested in finding the subjectivities and leaning into them. Um, when I write, for example, uh, you know, I don't think to myself, well, can I write as well as X, Y, or Z? I'm trying to write um, as best I can for me as a reader. And then uh, the job then when I'm writing is always to go, would this, if I was reading this and I had suddenly had a, was hit by, with amnesia, would I think this is awesome? Would I fall in love with this? Would this excite me? And this, I'm always chasing how to get better and better and better at writing a better book for me. And then, so because I'm talking about subjectivities, it's easy for a critic of that attitude to say, well, then you're just saying you can write crap and it's, it'll stay crap and that's fine. But I would say no, because the ultimate goal is to understand that I change as a person and that although I maybe can write you know, uh, to a certain level right now for myself. If I learn my craft, if I read more books that are like books that I like, I can maybe and hopefully increase my craft at writing, not better in some objective sense, but at writing better for me. And then when I write the best book that I can for me, the job as a marketer, PR person, or publisher is to find that somebody who reads similarly to how I read is to find the right reader for that book. And I mean, of course, we understand this in almost any other aspect of life. Um, But when it comes to books, it's always like, oh, well, you know, what's the best book or that's a good book and that's not a good book, right? But if you have somebody, for example, who is an urban cozy mystery reader, right? Mm -hmm. And that's all they read and that's what they love. And then you give them a hard-boiled noir or something, and it's a great hard-boiled noir. They might not like it, right? And we all understand why that would happen, because yeah. the tropes that they're used to aren't in that book. The, the mood, the vibe, the atmosphere, the characters, the motivations, even the way the book in the hard-boiled noir, even the way it considers the world and what is realistic in that world is different from what that urban cozy reader thinks of as realistic and as appropriate, right? We all understand that. And we wouldn't expect that urban cozy reader to be to automatically be like, well, this is really good writing. They, it's so difficult for them to see that or appreciate that because it is so different from what they might be used to. So yeah. it's a long-winded way of me just saying, I lean into, into subjectivity. I lean into finding what I love because I believe that there are lots of different people out there who like different things. And the real point is to find people who read like me, to write for the best that I can for me and then find people who read like well, me. Well, and do you think that kind of treating treating your writing as something for you does that do you think that almost kind of keeps you humble in a way because you you always have to answer to yourself yeah yeah and that's a good point and i and i think it does i think that um i'm always trying to be better from like the race isn't with anybody else the race is just with myself it's to get better at writing for me the other thing that happens there is i'm never that worried about what other people are doing not in some kind of like oh they're not doing it well or whatever like that it's what am i trying to say it's just I'm really focused on trying to lean into what what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and then you, I read as deeply and and as broadly as I can, so that I can nick stuff from other people when I when when they are doing something that as I'm reading I go, oh, you know what I mean? When, when you take that deep breath in, when you get that moment of excitement from someone else's re- reading from someone else's work, I'm going they're, well. They're doing something that's connecting with me, that's magical to me, and so I want to understand that and be able to put that into my own work to make my own work better. So, yeah, I think that it's hard to get I. It's hard to think, oh, you're great, or, the, or to have a big head, if you also think, 
that everything is relatively subjective and that there are different pockets of ideas of what is good and what is not. And it's, it's very perspective based and driven. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Well, and I think if you understand that you are constantly changing and, and getting Mm -hmm. better at certain things and maybe, uh, maybe you, and your, your interest is changing. And so you're, you're moving around in terms of what you focus on. I think really, really kind of coming to grips with that, uh, that might kind of keep you from thinking you're the best ever right because you're you're it makes it more of a learning a personal learning experience rather than a you know i i I feel like i feel like i run into the um the trap sometimes of thinking of my writing purely as a career Mm. in terms of this is how i feed my family and this i have to do it well in xyz particular ways and i I don't know when that happens. It's the, it's the most unhappy I am as a writer. No, I can totally believe that. And I would say, especially since so much of the most tangible measure of success falls so far out of the average author's control. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is my own little belief system about how this all, all this stuff works. But I think that largely what dictates a successful book, again, if we're talking about sales, because that's the most tangible way of measuring it, um, is how visible the book is in the marketplace. And that visibility visibility is dictated largely by a publisher's ability to market and uh, you know generate publicity for that book to the right readers, right to readers who are most likely to pick that book up. And publishers pick and choose who they think is going to be the next winner, right? And it ends up being largely statistically a self fulfilling prophecy. Because if you say, oh, we think this is going to be the next big thing, and you put 300, 400, a million, a million dollars behind it to market it and, 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 you know, push PR, you're buying its end table positions at the bookstore. Uh, you know, you've got booksellers really pushing hard on, on libraries, on, um, you know, and on, on all that sort of stuff. It's more likely that that book's going to be a success. It's more likely that, that that book is going to move copies. Will there still be flops when there's a big budget? Of course there will. But, to look at those and to look at the flops, okay, or to look at the unlikely successes as if that is the standard, I think is to do the wrong thing. On, in, on average, in general, statistically speaking, the larger the marketing budget, the larger the push behind a book, the more likely it is to be a sales success. And that's not something that we as authors can control at all, not directly. Um, you know, so you could write the most brilliant book, um, whatever that would mean if there was an objective measure. And I don't think there is. You could, if you were to even manage to do that, if the book does not gain visibility and there are 4,000 odd books being published a day, what chance does that brilliant book have? Yeah. I mean, next to none. I mean, yeah. you have to leverage something. And, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that leverage is all on your, your publisher. Sometimes it's all on you. And maybe you're already a little famous for something else you don't exactly. mind. Or maybe, maybe you have a, a lot of really successful uh, self-published people are people that have backgrounds in marketing because they yeah. understand the mechanism uh, of how these things work and, and are able to kind of dive into Amazon algorithms and all this stuff. And they know the vocabulary at least. And they're able to kind of grasp it. Man, I have spent countless hours trying to figure out all of that stuff. I've read articles and everything. And even though I feel like I've probably educated myself on all that stuff pretty well, I still feel like it's beyond me, right? Like it's so much. Yeah, there's a ton. And and, and if they didn't have the background before, they've definitely di- um, dived in like you have and learned as much as they can. And I think one of the, uh, one of the things, again, that people don't speak about enough is that 
Not all, of course, it's never all, but statistically speaking, I would make the argument that the majority of full-time indie writers, okay, um, have decently deep catalogs and they spend tens of thousands of dollars a month on advertising to make their books visible. And if you're not playing that game, how, you know, that's, but again, that's how largely you're making yourself visible in a massive ecosystem like Amazon's, right? Um, it, Amazon is largely um, pay to play for a lot of, for indie publishing. And, it, and that's not something that people talk about enough. Yeah. So if you are not paying, you don't get to really play because you can't make your book visible enough. Um, and again, even to people listening, they'll probably say, well, I know somebody who had a massive success and they didn't spend any money. And sure, yeah, that happens. That's that lightning in a bottle. But uh, careers and industries aren't made off lightning in the bottle, right? And so, the again, it's about averages. It's about statistical chances. And the majority of those indie um, authors who are, who are making full-time livings doing this spend a lot of money to make sure the books stay visible. And that's not a slight against them. Our publishers do the same thing for us, right? It's just how business works in the current way that business works in the world at this current moment, right? That's just, you have to make things visible. Nike doesn't spend millions and millions on marketing for fun and giggles. <laughs> you know, uh, Avengers Endgame had one of the largest marketing budgets of any movie uh, in history, in the history of Hollywood. Avengers Endgame, like after like 19 or 20 or 21 previous movies that were all hits leading up to that, Directly following Avengers Infinity War, which was a massive success, okay, uh, Disney was like, you know what we should do is spend a couple hundred million dollars marketing the, the end cap to this whole buildup. And again, Disney, for, for good or ill or whatever, they're not fools. They didn't do that, again, for giggles. They did that because they knew they had to do that to, re- to reap the most potential out of that as a, as a product, again, to use that word, right? Yeah. So it's just the way, it, in my opinion, it's just the way it is at the moment well, for good or ill. Well, and there's, there's an aspect of that, that that we don't talk about in terms of kind of the way the human mind works is that we just forget stuff. We've all exactly. got things going on. I mean, I get, I get emails reasonably often that essentially amount to, hey, I read Promise of Blood six years ago. I had no idea there were sequels. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and you're like, and, and so you like, and, and as the author, like you want to take it personally. You want to be like, what the heck? Wouldn't you look, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't you care, you know, if you enjoyed the first book, wouldn't you seek out more? But you can't because people are just, their brains are fickle. Even if they want something, they forget about it in like the kind of mm-hmm. course of a normal life, which is why Endgame had so much marketing is because even though you've seen 20 other Marvel films, if you don't know that that Marvel film is coming out this summer, you're not going to go see it. Exactly. And that's that's 100% how I feel about the whole thing. And that same principle, I personally believe, uh, operates in publishing and books and in indie publishing, especially. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, and it's tough because when authors don't talk about it that way or think about it that way, um, it's easy to feel like sales, a lack of sales success falls on the writer. Yeah. And that's not fully fair. I don't think, um, if it's, if your book's been traditionally published, it's been vetted, uh, as much as anything is vetted in publishing. Uh, it's gone through that whole sort of ringer, uh, from agent to editor to, uh, marketing team. Uh, it has a cover and all the rest, right. And it's put out into the marketplace. And if it doesn't sell well, it's like, oh, you, you maybe you wrote a bad book, but that's, that's not what really is happening there. I think largely, okay. The, a, a huge factor in that sales success or lack of success again is was the book pushed? How hard was the book pushed? And was it pushed to the right audience? Yeah, and that's that. Sometimes is hard to engage with because then you have to engage with uh, the the business mechanism behind all mm-hmm. of this, you know, behind every single decision and 
And who's going to say no to, oh, this extra bit of marketing budget for this one book? You know, there's so much going on there behind the scenes that amount to maybe even just a handful of conversations, but could change the life of somebody like you or me. Exactly. Right? Who's who's an author and and this is our sole income and it's it's wild and intimidating as heck. Uh, which is probably why a lot of people don't talk about it too much. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think that's one of the difficult things about being any sort of creative, right? Is that so much of the end result of being any kind of creative falls outside of your hands. I remember when I was uh, when I was first acting and again relatively young and when I became a director, I started to understand that when you go into an audition, the director already has an idea about what they're looking for. And you can be, you can do an amazing job of whatever your interpretation of that role is. But if it's not what that director has in mind, you're not going to get the part, right? And so there's that weird sort of um, synchronicity that has to happen in order to have success in a lot of these fields. And because it's not, it can't be controlled by the individual doing the creation, it creates a lot of, I think, insecurity, right? It's, it's, a, it's our jobs, uh, you know, can be difficult because of how insecure they can make you feel because there is that feeling of a lot of lack of control over critical elements. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's funny that you brought up the kind of going into audition because it's, because so much of creativity is it's, it's all so incredibly personal and, mm. and it's hard, even though it's funny because, you know, to be a creative person, you almost have to be quite empathetic and you quite, ha- you have to understand how other people's minds work, but we, it stops, you stop being able to do that. The moment, the moment your baby is under attack, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's your really good audition or whether it's your sample chapters or, or your finished book or whatever, like the moment that the moment that that's under attack, you f- immediately forget that everybody else in the world, from the people that gave you a bad review to maybe the the business person that made the decision not to pick up something of yours or whatever, you know, everybody else has got their own life going on. They've got their own, maybe they were just pissed off that day, mm-hmm. or maybe they had a very particular vision, like you said, that it just didn't quite fit into. And so it's it's so easy to take these things personally as a solo creator, as as being the one person there uh, who's getting a review or or something. Oh man, it's but but you have to try to remember that there's so much else going on that has really nothing to do with you, and try to not take that personally, but also try to not lose your sense of identity. Right. Because it's so easy to like to to look at the wild, the wider world and conceptualize billions of people. And then just your head blows up. You're just you're just like, I can't even, you know, like think I can barely consider the ideas that my parent, that my neighbors, you know, go shopping. You know, like, how do you understand that the rest of the world is operating just as intensely as you are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just as intensely and individually as you are. And I think. And I think to help me get through and help me sit down at the keyboard and and do the work, uh, I think that that's why um, the idea of that subjectivity helps me as well. Because I get to say to myself when I sit down at the keyboard, I'm trying to write the best story for me. Uh, I'm trying to do something that would please me. Uh, not because I think nobody else has value, but because I'm hoping that if I can create something of value to me, it might be able to hold value for somebody else. Yeah. And that's the only way I know how to do it because if I do it for somebody else or with somebody else in mind necessarily, I'm guessing at their intentions. I'm guessing at their motivations. And of course, if we are empathetic enough, we can have a good sense of who others are and what they want. 
but it also, I think at the end of the, the day is also more satisfying to really please myself. Because when that bad critical review comes in and they say, this was the worst book I've ever read, it's shallow and fickle and you know what's Evan thinking? I go, I hear you and your criticism makes sense for you and, I, and that's completely fine, but I still love this. Yeah. I still think this is awesome and I still read it and enjoy it. And that's yeah. good enough. Like what, what else can I do? That's, that has to be good enough for me, right? Right, otherwise you just kind of lose your sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, last fall, I was... Uh, I was working a bit on the, um, I was just kind of doing a little quick read through on the, uh, the pilot script for powder mage that maybe we'll get a TV show someday, you know, fingers oh, crossed. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Okay. I didn't, I don't think I knew that. Oh yes. Yeah, so Congratulations. We first of all. And- <laughs> no, we, I mean, we announced it last year. It was, um, it was a, so a small Canadian production company picked up powder mage Congratulations. And, and fingers crossed. Uh, so Joe, Joe Malozzi, uh, who my first episode of this podcast was me talking to him. Uh, and, uh, but Joe Malozzi's the showrunner. He was the show. He did a whole lot of Stargate. Uh, he did dark matter, a few other things. Um, and he's excellent. He's very cool. Uh, but so I was, I was kind of re- reading through this, uh, the pilot script he sent me and, and I was also reading the first like five or six chapters of promise of blood to try to remember what had gone on because I had read it for years. <laughs> and it's so funny looking back on something after, gosh, I think it, at that point it would have been like eight or nine years since I had not since the last time I read it, but since I wrote it. And it was funny looking back on that and kind of flipping through pages. And there were moments when I went, man, I would totally have done this differently. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's this one thing here or and there's a bit here. I would have changed this description. Or I would have definitely changed this plot point, you know, all this stuff. But then there's something so incredibly satisfying about even at my most self-critical reading through that and going, Huh. Yeah, that was this was pretty awesome in this part. <laughs> like, no, I, it's so good, right? I was gonna say I love that. That's that's that mirrors my experience perfectly. And I mean, I don't even have the the sort of the benefit of uh, of the nine years yet. But it's the same for me. Uh, when I was, you know, I'm working on book three still. I had to go back and read book one and book two. And yeah, there are totally things I would change or adjust. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean intellectually, I wouldn't really do it because it is, it exists as it is. And I'm happy that it's out in the world exactly the way it is uh, because that was me at that time. But intellectually, there's things that I would adjust or change to better fit who I am today. But by and large, the experience was still like, oh yeah, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and, and not in any objective way, just to me. And, and right. at the same time, that's got to be enough to a certain extent. Like I still laugh at some of the, the, there's not that many jokes necessarily, but some of the things that are funnier are still funny to me. And I, I you know, and I, I still, I still feel sort of my pulse start to to pound a little harder in some of the, in some of the action scenes. Yeah. And, uh, and that makes me feel like I'm on the right track, hopefully. Uh, at least given the way that I'm approaching the work. Now, maybe in 10, 15 years, I'll be like, oh, everything I said here was completely wrong. <laughs> I think about it totally differently. Um, hopefully not, but maybe, right? Uh, but, you know, for now, it's, I like working this way. It makes me, it it staves off some of the insecurities that I think are so common to creatives. Yeah. It doesn't keep them completely at bay, <laughs> but it keeps them at a slight remove, maybe is what I'll say. Right, right. That's, you know, that's the best <laughs> you could really do. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, so I, I had seen you on uh, Twitter talking about watching Wheel of Time with your son. Mm. And I, as somebody who does not have kids, um, I, I was kind of curious about the experience because I feel like, I feel like I, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. I've got a whole bunch of siblings, a bunch of nieces and nephews. Um, so I've kind of watched this sort of process go through plenty of times from the outside. But I, I, I kind of wonder sometimes whether if I had had kids, whether I would have been so afraid of them rejecting the things that I love mm-hmm. that it would have kind of kept me frozen, you know, like, um, and maybe a little distant even because there's so many things that are so formative to me that, that are easy to reject, you know, uh, like, like fantasy, like this nerdy stuff. And, and we talk in a day where, you know, nerd is kind of king, right? Like, you know, we talk about the budget for Endgame, mm-hmm. but like, but that, that wasn't kind of the, the atmosphere that I grew up in. And, and so I kind of, I, I wonder if you, if you kind of approached that, if, if, if you looked at, if you're, if you've kind of gone the entire way so far with your son of it being a very kind of two way relationship of you, you presenting him with things and seeing whether he's taken them or, or if you've been very hesitant about it, or if you've tried to just be joyful, how do you approach that? Yeah, no, that's a good question as well. And I think that it, 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 you had it right there at the end as well. It's, it's joyful indoctrination. <laughs> I mean, in so many things, it's what we're exposed to. Like in, in, even in terms of just worldview, attitudes, um, the way we see history, the present, the future depends on what we're exposed to, what we're told, the, the, the meta narrative that sort of guides us and makes us think of what is normal and neutral, right? Um, and in raising him, uh, my son, I, I tried to share with him all the things I loved. Because then I got to experience them again through his eyes and love them afresh. And so we watched uh, Gremlins and we watched, um, you know, Alien and we watched all the Terminators and Star Wars and, uh, you know, and um, what else? We watched uh, 
Avatar The Last Airbender, which was a trip, and he it's one of his favorites, right? We went through all that kind of stuff. Um, Gravity Falls together. We watched that show, which is excellent. Oh, that's such a good one. It's such a good show, yeah. And we, we did all that, and, and yeah, and so um, all the fantasy things that are sort of reasonably appropriate for him, uh, we watch. We've seen every single Marvel movie, right? Um, I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or bad thing in the end, because that's a lot of Marvel. <laughs> but uh, we watched every Marvel movie together, and we talk about that stuff in our free time. And he's 10 years old um, and just turned 10 a, a few months ago. And he is currently, he tells me when he, each chapter he finishes, he tells me. He's currently 200 pages in on The Wheel of Time. Yeah. Uh, and we finished the show. And he's enjoying, he's sitting there, he's a 10-year-old, sitting there 200 pages deep in The Wheel of Time. I think what just happened is they've just met Min and Min was given the visions to like, uh, you know, it was, it was described for visions for Rand, Perrin, uh, Egwene and, and the rest. I can't remember if Matt's there. Now I'm confusing whether Matt's there in the book because he wasn't there in the show. So anyway, but I, I I've been struggling with that too, trying to remember <laughs> what actually happened in the books because it's been mm-hmm. so long for me. But it's been it is so incredibly joyful uh, to to watch him go and like you say because he he did accept the things that I loved and it would have been totally valid for him not to do that right for him to be like Dad this stuff is this stuff is uh, not for me and then you go okay well. I tried, um, and it's not working out, but, uh, he has taken them on like wholeheartedly and yeah. And he's a read like it, sad as it is to say right now, he outreads me. Like he reads more than I do. He's 10 years old. And part of it's cause I'm under deadline and you know, life is busy and stressful, but like really he's reading more than I am. Right. And to see him pick up that book and take it to his bedroom at night, uh, the wheel of time book and take it up to his bedroom to read a few more pages before, uh, the day's done. I, I couldn't ask for a more satisfying, humbling, and incredible feeling. Like I, I, I love who he is as a person inside and out, and it's it's it made it only more joyful because we get to share a lot of these passions. That is super cool. I uh, I love that. That's very fun. I uh, I feel like there's there's uh, there's lots of aspects of being a dad that I feel like I would be have zero functionality for, um, <laughs> and and I feel confident in my decision, uh, but there's little parts that occasionally pull at my heartstrings that just like, that's the kind of thing, like sharing something that I loved as a child with a kid. Oh man, that, that's, that's something that, that, that I do have small regrets for. But I, I say that uh, with, with your nieces and nephews, with your friends and family, like I'm sure that happens as well there. And, and there's that sort of, they get those pieces of you and from the work you do, the conversations you have with them. And I don't know, like, yeah, that, that level of connection in all ways is just, is just awesome. And being able to see someone else excited about something that excites you, right? Like, ah, yeah. like whoever they are, like it's such, it's such a good feeling. So I, I've always been a little bit distant with my nieces and nephews. And I think, I think it was an anxiety thing for most of my life. Mm. Um, but I, uh, but last fall, my, one of my nieces wound up at a college right near where I live. And, uh, and so it was like, oh, hey, hold, I suddenly have family right here. That's really cool. And, uh, and I invited her to come spend a weekend not long after she arrived. And, and then I showed her, uh, I showed her the show. I don't know if you've even heard of the show Taskmaster, uh, from the UK. Oh, no, I haven't. Um, it, it's, it's a UK panel show that is brilliant. It is probably mm-hmm. my favorite thing on television. Um, oh, and it's entering like it's 12th season. It's very funny. It's five comedians who do stupid tasks and then get judged for it by another comedian. 
and it's just the whole setup, everything works, it gels really well. But I decided to show this to her because I, I, we had spent a little time together and I was thinking, okay, I feel like she has a similar sense of humor. And I'll be honest, the first episode I put on, I spent the entire episode watching her face. And when she started laughing at things that I find hysterical, like there, there was that moment of like, oh man, I succeeded. Like, like this worked. <laughs> like, holy crap, she does like that. Like other people that, you know, other people that I love that are close to me mm-hmm. actually like something that I, that I, that I love. That's a little bit off, a little bit out there, especially for Americans. Um, you know, British humor doesn't always land. So, mm-hmm. you know, like just, so I, that was, that's kind of, I feel like that's the closest I've had to that experience so far. Yeah, no, That sounds exactly like it. And, and, and that's what we do. I mean, um, even to the point where, um, we're trying to expand our horizons a bit, and it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a stretch for me. But as a family, we get to sit down and almost every night we watch um, K dramas, <laughs> like uh, Korean drama romances, right? Yeah. And so we watched uh, as an, as a family, all three of us, we watched Crash Landing on You, which is a very popular one that's on Netflix right now, mm-hmm. and we had a fantastic time. Like you know, we'd sit there and every night, and you know, all three of us, me, my wife, and my son, and we're sitting there, we're, we're enjoying the show. And even though it's not sort of super in my ballpark, it's not epic fantasy or things that I necessarily grew up with. It was just so fun to share that and to all enjoy it. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, I love storytelling and I love, um, yeah, I just, I just, in all its mediums, right. Um, from, like we said, from music videos to, to movies, television shows and, uh, and books, like it's just, there's something so powerful, I think about stories. And I really, really do believe that the stories we that we do tell each other again that sort of meta narrative just about the way the world works and um, you know the type of world we live in is it a good one a bad one is it meritocratic or objective or, or subjective influences so much of how we move through this world and how we experience life and and um, and sort of ha- have our our own little uh, movement through the overall human condition right yeah I feel I feel very privileged to be able to to work in storytelling um, and, and to sort of try and guide my son to things that really excited me as I was growing up. So, yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have an old buddy of mine who, uh, who's a, an English teacher, a high school English teacher. And he, he talks a lot about kind of this, this idea of using literature to not just to teach kind of like morality and the, the standard lessons that you get from, you know, high school English. Um, Not just that, but that, fiction and all of these all of these shows we watch and the stories we listen to or read or whatever that they really help especially children uh learn how the world works on a a deep and instinctual level rather than it being taught to them they read it and they understand and they start to understand how uh, very complex systems work, like like as as crazy as politics and religion mm-hmm. and things like that, and it gives them an instinctual baseline rather than trying to cram it all into their throats through you know lesson plans. Um, and I, I find that fascinating. No, and I definitely I, I completely agree with that. And it, it has at the very least been my experience with the world, uh, and so much of um, the sort of I guess, parallel thoughts to morality uh, and decency and, uh, you know, uh, come to me from the things I've read, you know, 
in in readings things like epic fantasy and and that sort of thing, which maybe sounds a little bit dangerous. You're like what people slaying dragons and stuff with swords is where you got your sense of morality from. I mean, obviously not solely, <laughs> but I think it it's it plays a part and it influences right. And so I, I definitely do believe that and that we sort of help ourselves understand the world through story. And yeah, I just. So I love that, that we, we get to do this and we get to try and be a part of, of, of telling stories to the world. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I like, it's, it's not a bad gig. <laughs> it's not, it, it really, it really isn't. Uh, I guess, you know, sometimes could do without the, the, the worry and the, and the feeling of like, oh my goodness, uh, I have no, I don't have as much control as I'd like over this next little aspect of how this works. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, I guess in lots of other jobs or, or careers, you don't either. So, yeah, uh, you know, while we're on the ride, we might as well enjoy it and enjoy the view. Do you have a um, Do you have a publication date for your next book yet? Uh, we're looking at, I think, early 2023, so next year. And, yeah. and again, that's a, about a two year gap, which is less than ideal. Um, so I think stressful. that. It's so yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm, at, um, I think I'm at a, a two and a half year when, when this book I'm pointing over my shoulder, um, mm-hmm. when this book comes out, it'll have been a two, two and a half year and it's, it's so stressful. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm glad you're empathizing with me here. Cause I'm, uh, yeah, it, it is stressful. And I think you worry about letting people down, even just from the weight, like let alone the, the, the quality of the book in terms of that reader and connecting with it as much as they did with the previous work. Like you worry about the weight, you worry about, like you were saying earlier, people starting to forget a little bit and, and moving on, which is completely reasonable and justifiable. Um, and also I think that uh, traditional publishing seems very much to be set up so that it is most comfortable you know, ramping up that sort of promotional and marketing cycle for that one a year thing, right? And that's where they seem to have a lot of success. Uh, so you want to work within the, const- while they're not hard constraints, you still kind of want to work within the soft constraints of the system in which you operate. Yeah. So it, it can be a little bit like, oh, this, uh, you know, this is uh, not anxiety inducing, anxiety making a little bit, right? I don't know. So. Yeah. Oh, it's It's so true. Oh, man. But good luck with it. It's just like riding through that cycle is just, oh man, it's, it is that weird thing of highs and lows where, Mm -hmm. you know, when it's going smooth, when you start having some good, like trade reviews come in, you know, things like that, you are just on fire. But then the Mm -hmm. moment you accidentally see a bad review or, or they tell you, oh, we're actually going to push you back two months, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. You just, you feel crushed for days at a time. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think I feel I feel somewhat fortunate that I had, I think, a little bit of a preparation for the way this this kind of works on your psyche. Um, as a music video director, what ends up happening is you, if you get the job, you ramp up to production. And when you're ramping up, up to production, they say, uh, uh, some, I've heard this said, uh, a director's job is to answer questions all day long. Um, and so if someone's coming to you and saying, well, what kind of belt should this person wear? What is the color of the paint on this wall going to be? What kind of car do we need for this? What camera, lenses, lighting, blah, blah, blah. And it's people asking you questions constantly. Your phone does not stop ringing for the entire production cycle, right? You're on set for 12, 14, 16 hours and yeah, and you know, a day and you're going hardcore operating at a hundred percent the entire time, both physically and mentally. You're solving problems constantly. And then you say, that's a wrap. The lights get turned off. Everybody sort of packs things away and goes home. And you go back to your hotel room because you're probably traveling to get this job anyway. And nobody cares if you live or die, it feels like. Oh <laughs> it feels God. like you've just vanished off the face of the earth. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it's sort of like, 
we do something like that in publishing too, right? You you wrap up to your launch day. It's all the writing and the editing and the proofreading and everything else. And you launch and everyone's focused on you. It feels like, at least to, to you as an individual, um, you know, and, and the, the publisher's calling you, your editor's calling you, marketing and PR all, are all over you. You're doing the whole, you know, uh, tour in terms of interviews and uh, writing, write-ups and whatever. And then three weeks, four weeks, a month later, silence it's right? god and nobody cares and you <laughs> and have to cares. ask you have to ask for your new sales numbers you know like <laughs> like as suddenly no it's to, it's completely true yeah. and it does and it feels weird because you're mm-hmm. used to working for most of the year in in total isolation and then suddenly you're asked to be a publicity person for i don't know what a month six weeks something like that where you're constantly dealing with emails planning things trying to make things work and then bam it's it's right back it's whiplash it's like mm-hmm. professional whiplash it is and i think what i used to notice is that i would my mood would do boom it would just it would just dive bomb after production and i'd feel like oh that was a successful shoot we had a good time why do i feel so bad and i started to realize oh it doesn't it's probably not normal for the human uh, like the human brain to go through that kind of like weird pressure cooker and then rapid and sudden release yeah. it's probably not normal so then i have to actually figure out ways of dealing with that and understanding that that's what i was going through probably in much the same way that a lot of writers talk about by the time you hit the middle of your book in drafting you think the whole thing is crap and never going to work right and you have to push your way through that so i guess I had to learn how to deal with that as a music video director. Yeah. So I think I'm a bit more comfortable after 15 years of that, of dealing with some of the highs and lows in publishing so far. Uh, you know, we'll see what the future brings, but uh, <laughs> so far I feel like I can, I, I, I can step back a little bit because I've seen some of this before, you know, but uh, I, if someone's a, a debut writer and they come into this and they don't have any experience with this type of work before, Oh man, it it could do a number on you, I think. It really can. It's crazy how it does. Oh man. And and creative writing classes, they don't prepare you for that kind of <laughs> Yeah. Class, you know, like <laughs> it's like the creative writing classes are great, you know, and I've done lots. I did lots of them, but there's certain aspects that they just don't talk about, or a lot of times the creative writing teacher hasn't experienced because maybe mm-hmm. they're a short story writer and maybe they've put out dozens or hundreds of stories, you know, things like that. And so you're yeah, it's it's such a funky industry and everybody's experiences are a little bit different, but there's also parts that are very universal that nobody talks about. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's important in my mind um, as someone who's been, again, extremely fortunate to be in a position where I get to say I'm a traditionally published author and I was an indie published author. I feel fortunate for both of those. It's important in my mind to talk about some of these things that aren't often talked about because like we said earlier, it's often 50% of the job. And I think that, again, like my, my buddy told me about um, looking ahead to see what people, to see if you could live the life of people that are doing that thing that you think you want to do. It's important to talk about all aspects of this. So people, um, especially people who are trying to write or trying to get to a level where they're selling stuff professionally, understand what the job means and they understand what weight they should shoulder and what weight it's not, is not theirs to shoulder because it was never theirs to shoulder in the first place. Uh, again, a primary thing about that being your sales numbers. So much of that is outside of the author's control. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Well, hey, I have kept you forever, uh, but I like to wrap up every one of these episodes by asking uh, everybody a simple question. What's the last thing you ate that blew your mind? The last, oh man, that's, why is that tough? That shouldn't be tough. <laughs> the last thing I ate that blew my mind that actually shouldn't be tough. 
Oh. It's funny because I, I never prep people for this question. And I'm fascinated by there are some people who answer it like just oh. it, like half a second, no hesitation whatsoever. But I, I, I feel like probably 75, 80% of people have to sit and think for a moment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Um, for class, my son had to make a dessert dish and as a sort of a little project. Um, and what he made with uh, my wife's help. And then I actually had to film a little video of him making it so that the, the rest of the class could see it. Cause they were at the time they were all doing like online learning. Yeah. And he took a recipe from a book we ordered, we ordered that was um, Amazon, the last airbender food recipes. And they made these sort of like almost caramelized peaches. They're so they're like, there's a dessert peach kind of thing. So it's peaches cooked in like a little bit of sugary stuff, something. And because it was made with so much love and uh, my, my, my son and my wife made it together. And then we got to do the little film project and watch him eat it. And then we all got to eat it. That was a very memorable dessert and uh, a fun experience for all of us. So I'm going to pick that. Oh, that's great. I like that. <laughs> oh man. Weirdly that just brought a very powerful memory into my head um, of, uh, of us reading for, for school in elementary school, us reading um, a line, which the wardrobe and one of our assignments was to bring in Turkish delight. Oh, uh, and so uh, so I made. I don't remember if it was an assignment for the whole class or if they'd only picked a handful of students to do it. But I remember my mom pulling out all of her old cookbooks uh, and and laying them all out and finding a good recipe. And then yeah, we spent like two nights straight just making Turkish delight, like a whole bunch of different versions of it. And it wound up ter- it wound up being a little weird to my sense because it's this strange little you know kind of british dessert uh but uh but yeah I, that brought that memory back really powerfully that whole like kind of family bonding over something like that is kind of fun that's awesome you made turkish delight with your mom i did yeah it's great dude that's very, i remember those books and again at the time when i read um the narnia books i was in zambia you couldn't get turkish delight i imagine <laughs> It's talked about so much. And I was like, yo, I'm really trying to get some Turkish delight because this sounds delicious. But uh, yeah, no, that is, that's an awesome story that you got to do that. See, like, and I hope that these are the things that, again, my son remembers because like all these years later, we're having a conversation and you're remembering that. And, you know, and I think, yeah, that's, I hope he has a bunch of those to sort of, to to draw back on. So, yeah. Uh, For sure. That's very cool. That was epic fantasy author Evan Winter. Thanks again to Evan for coming on. You can find him on Twitter or his website and pick up his books from your favorite retailer. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.